I'm Lauren Maxwell, and this is We're All Friends Here. Welcome to Let's Talk, a series of conversations about life's biggest questions. Today, I'm thrilled for you to meet John Youngshik Conklin. John is a conductor, violist, and nonprofit advisor based wherever the work is. As a conductor, he's served on the faculties of Vanderbilt, Furman, Clemson, and Converse universities, worked with numerous orchestras, including Nashville Symphony and the Atlanta Symphony, and is a conductor with Piedmont Chamber Orchestra and the Atlanta Music Project, an organization for music as social change. As a nonprofit operative, he advises organizations, political campaigns, and governments on public policy, strategy, and data analysis. He holds a seat in the Greenville Symphony Orchestra as a violist and co-founded Mozart for a Cause, an annual event with me. I was convinced that you were going to have like an inner game with yourself to see how many times you could make me laugh today, but I don't think you went there. Um, I got a few good ones. We are very serious in this house. Yeah, yeah, yes, very serious, incredibly serious. You should look, so at, look at the songs serious. that we wrote. They're very serious. We're so serious. Yeah, right. Hi, lovey. Hey. I'm glad you're here. Me too. Full disclosure for anyone listening, John and I are married. Yeah, that's right. We just saw each other two minutes ago. Yeah, but we are in separate spaces in our house, um, partly for audio reasons and partly to preserve one of the sort of foundational ideas of Let's Talk, which is around the intimacy of the phone call, specifically the phone call, not like the video call or the Zoom call, because um, the phone call creates a different kind of space. The other thing is, it's really tempting just to make this whole conversation about our meet cute because... I love that story. I love thinking about the past 10 years together. And I feel really inspired by this idea of like us being soulmates, walking this path together. But for the sake of consistency, I just guess we should stick to the themes that we've covered with everybody else. I think that's probably safe. Otherwise, we'd be starting a whole other series. (laughs) So tell the people how the pandemic changed your life this past spring. Well, I mean, in, in, in my life has changed in the way that many others has changed. We stay in the house more and don't go out and uh, limit social interactions. Half of my work life has not changed. So I, I worked remotely uh, for a nonprofit institute for child success. And the other side of my career, the music side, um, starting around March, um, things just started disappearing one after the other. And I think that we knew that it was going to happen, but that was a little surreal, just sort of watching it all drift away and really not knowing when it was going to come back. Yeah, and that's true. I can say, having lived this with you, is that it wasn't like this one-time decision. Um, It was like this, okay, first we're going to cancel this next thing, then we're going to cancel this next month, then we're going to cancel the remainder of the season. And then different organizations made their own calculations about <laughs> how to look at next year. So, um, yeah, I think, I, I think it's, it's really challenging to live in that state of limbo. Yeah, I think you could sort of normalize to it, I guess. Um, we, I, I think back to the good old days when we all thought maybe by the summer we can all start emerging from this thing. Looking at the numbers, I personally wrapped my mind around nothing coming back until the fall of 2021. And then anything before that's going to be a happy surprise. But in the worst Mm -hmm. case scenario that 
we take a full season off, I guess mentally I might be a little more prepared, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that ties into your whole kind of Zen approach to art making and music making, which is something I want to talk about. But first, I want to ask you, did living through this pandemic or is living through this pandemic bringing up any fear or worries that have affected your life? I don't think so. I guess what it does is it magnifies the existing ones. Like as a musician, you're always in a state of, um, am I going to get the next performance kind of thing? Long-term commitments are sort of few and far between. And you're always sort of in the state of trying to figure out what the next gig is going to be or the next concert or the next invitation. And uh, that was always just sort of a concern, I guess. COVID has now made that, it makes you wonder when things come back, what is it going to look like? Are there going to be more opportunities? Are there there going to be fewer opportunities? Are they going to be different than what you have been prepared for and what you've been doing? And so there's a lot of time to sort of sit around and reflect and that can be positive, but also, you know, you can sort of think yourself into oblivion kind of thing. So I I guess it's in some ways it makes you more prepared to live with the day to day going back to normal. So I think back of like, Oh, what was I worried about? You know, like there was Mm -hmm. this, upcoming concert and now uh it's sort of like well maybe sometime in 2021 we'll do something Uh, yeah yeah and i think when you're working in a field where there's you're already dealing with a bit of scarcity like there aren't always enough opportunities for the number of people who want them this has only intensified um that feeling especially when no one knows what it's going to look like when this is over and also this this idea of magnification, I think, has been a recurring theme in everything. I mean, you know, it's like, oh, rent's a problem in New York during the pandemic. Now rent is really a problem in New York. And you could go on and on. Yeah, yeah. No, I, so, so I see this in the other side of the work that I do uh, with the think tank. And the, the party line is like, look, these things have always been a problem. It's that we sort of been papering over them with the next cool thing. You know what I mean? Like housing has always been a problem. Uh, the minimum wage is far too low. Student loans are out of control. You know, the list goes on and on and COVID has only made these things just acutely obvious to everyone. Right. Right. And it's also kind of overwhelming when, when you think of it in terms, um, of the fact that, while this is a major magnifying glass, there are many more coming down the line that we can see, you know, whether it's the wealth gap, whether it's climate change, um, whatever it is. And that's going to continue to highlight these vulnerabilities in our culture. Yeah, no, totally. So what has brought you unexpected joy or comfort in quarantine? Um, it's also something that's brought maybe you a little unexpected joy. I have really enjoyed the two to three hours it takes me a week to clean the house and I've <laughs> oh actually God. sort of like I thought you were gonna say cooking also cooking but I, I sort of have banished you from doing it simply because it's like <laughs> the one three hour space in which I can start and end the task and you can really see the benefits of it at the end of it and I don't think about anything related to COVID or anything related to music or anything related to the nonprofit stuff. Yeah. It's very cute. It's like a whole thing. Like you just, um, you honestly look so happy. You put on earphones and you just go into podcast land and like have a cleaning rampage. Yeah. I I mean, it sounds weird, but I just can't imagine my life now not having that three hours 
a week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, I also want to ask you about music making and, you know, just to give people context, um, you are a performing musician who was working at a pretty high level before the pandemic. And also, you know, you and I have kind of put everything on the line, so to speak, these past few years to try to live uh, more creatively um, in both of our respective ways. And it's been rewarding, but also really challenging. And so you had kind of hit a good stride in a way where you were getting some nice invitations. You had some really promising opportunities on the calendar. And those are the ones we were talking about that got wiped away. And, you know, I can also say from having watched you over the years that you've been negotiating with this role of being a musician um, for the the decade that we've been together and certainly before that. But I did notice that after you took sort of a break, um, which was necessary for us to get our feet on the ground after the recession, um, that's a whole other conversation. But when you came back to music full-time and the pursuit of making music full-time, you really came alive creatively in this way that was joyful and inspiring. And then not too long after the rug was pulled out from under you. So I'm wondering how your relationship to music and artistry has changed as a result of this pause. Some of that, I don't know if I can answer yet because we're not on the tail end of it, but I I can say that I I guess, I mean, you mentioned me taking a hiatus and it was self-imposed. And I think what you're talking about coming back to it, feeling rejuvenated is that uh, things got to a very stale and self-defeating place because um, I was doing it uh, in sort of the rat race and the art was not being achieved in a sustainable way. Uh, In other words, I was kind of miserable doing it and I sort of lost sight of why we do it to begin with. So in some ways that moment of stopping uh, and mm-hmm. then coming back almost was practice for this forced hiatus that we're all having to take. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, during that hiatus, I sort of dramatically gave away all my scores and then um, <laughs> wrote around it. I'm laughing because they ended up coming back well, to you later unexpectedly. Story, but uh, I wrote around in the car and didn't play the, I didn't play any music. And yeah. Uh, I have all those scores back to me, which is probably a signal from the universe that tells me I should be doing this to begin with. Yeah. The place that I gave them back to invited me to do a whole set of concerts mm-hmm. and they still had them and they didn't know where they came from. <laughs> and so then they gave them back to me when I told them they, they were mine. But yeah, no, I'm sitting here not performing, but I still have access to music. I still am learning music for the first time in my life. I enjoy watching performances. I mean, I really struggled with that early in my career. I had a really hard time watching other people perform. And it was probably out of some deficit mindset of, oh my God, I'm never going to get on the stage. Mm. Famous people, top of, you know, anyone, any, any, I just, I couldn't watch other people perform because I felt like if they're performing. Your fear-based reaction. Yeah. And so mending that over the hiatus and then coming back to it in a sort of healthy, mindful way of like, this is why we're doing this. Um, it's not to like have your name on a poster or anything like that. It's, it's for the sake of the art it sort of liberates you. And, you know, you can just be in the moment with whatever orchestra or whatever the musicians you were there with. 
Mm-hmm. But when you say this is why we're doing this, what what do you mean? Yeah, uh, I mean the performative arts are different, of course, because those are based in time. And when you get the opportunity to be in the room with other musicians, all focused on the same thing, that in itself is worth doing it. If you get paid, even better. Uh, all mm-hmm. musicians should be paid self-sufficient wages, as should all workers. But the point of it is to 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 create in the moment with other people. And um, I love how simple that is. Well, I mean, yeah, like I think about kids and why they why do you join a youth orchestra? It's because it's fun. Mm. Uh, you know and it's supposed to be fun why did we all go get college degrees why do we all have master's Mm. degrees it's because the thing is supposed to be fun it's supposed to be enjoyable yes it's a job sometimes but yeah and then as once you leave school and start to navigate the audition circuit and those uh the slim nature of the opportunities or the the scarcity we were talking about becomes known it can start to feel not fun at all yeah yeah and you you can get into a rut with it of constantly worrying about what the next thing is and am i going to get it am i going to make it whatever that means yeah (laughs) but yeah no there's enough to go around and if you focus in the moment then you have all you need yeah yeah so being in the moment that is the ultimate um goal of a lot of kind of religious and spiritual practices and meditation and things like that. And I love that you found a way to connect musicianship to that. Uh, Yeah, no, my mentor gave me a book right when I was sort of in the nadir of whatever that was of feeling toxic about the whole thing. And it was the Tao. That book is sort of, or that set of poems, I guess, uh, has sort of stuck with me for since then. Yeah, I know. And it's resulted in this like really Zen approach to artistry and to career, which can be maddening um, as someone who lives with you and coexists with you because our relationships with patients are very different and our relationships with like expectations and like how quickly we want to achieve things are very different. So how do you, how do you cultivate that this sort of like trust in the long game especially during a pandemic, but really always because there's like this, I think, natural urge that human beings have to share their gifts with the world. And how did you find like such peace with that pitted against the world's ability to make use of them? Um, that Well, that makes it sound like I'm somehow more spiritually evolved than I actually am. So uh, the truth is that I, I was in a privileged position. So I didn't believe that until it came back to me. Do you know what I mean? Like I spent the first 10 years of my conducting career always obsessed with the short term, what comes next. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's what got me into trouble later on. But so I put it down and just sort of committed myself to, if it's going to come back, it's going to come back and I'll still be young and it'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And you know, throughout that time period where I was wondering if it was going to come back, I was about to just sort of let the thing go. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, just in quick succession, like several things just immediately come back to me. I don't even seek them. Like I don't even like apply. Mm -hmm. They just come back to me. Just landed in your lap. And so I have the privilege of saying, look, this eventually does work out. 
and I don't know if it works out for everybody. I believe that it does uh, if you sort of set your intentions on it. And and also maybe loosen your grip on what success looks like. Yeah, that's right. And like also with the time expectation, like I remember saying to myself when I was 24 coming out of graduate school, I need to be in X place by the time I'm 35. And it turns out I was in the exact place that I wanted to be. It just didn't happen when I was 29. And Mm. some of it was that, you know, there's this quote unquote path that you want to take. Right. And for the first 80% of it, I was like, like clockwork one after the other, do this, do that, do this, do that. And like, I was just checking off the boxes and I felt like this pressure to keep on going, keep on being five years ahead. And it's like, what's five years, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. so I, I speak from a place of it, it did work out for me. So like now it's like, well, why would I ever not continue to hold that philosophy, Mm -hmm. if you will? Yeah. And it's so funny um, that we're partners in this because you're here saying like, well, what's five years? It's really nothing. And I'm like, five days is everything. Five days. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, I completely understand that. And like, there are moments where I'm like, oh my God, this is never going to happen. You know what I mean? And so, Mm -hmm. um, but then I, I have this reservoir of experiences to go back to and that I I know it's a privilege every single day to be able to like fall back on that. Um, so it's, it's a gift. Do you think that there's anything in particular besides, um, your mentor giving you that book that, that led you to this place or was it mostly the book or just lived experience? Uh, you know, it's a little bit of everything. So the book was the foundation and then his sort of very sparse five word emails in reply to my (laughs) 500 word emails to him were helpful. Um, our relationship, of course, there were times where I was probably inconsolable about things. Oh no, I don't think so. Uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe. And then, well, I think that's the thing is that we've, we've always felt and faced those moments together and really as this kind of like unit in figuring out how can we support what's best for the other person and also what's best for us. Yeah. So it never felt like, oh, he's unconsolable. What am I going to do about this? It always felt like, okay, we're facing this together. How do we take a step forward and how do we act in this moment, you know, with as much wisdom as we can, but also like staying dedicated to our long-term vision. And I'm joking about my five-day thing, but because I tend to, you know, act quickly and expect equally quick results. But the truth is that we've kind of chosen some values for our life or kind of like a, a vision, I guess. And every decision, even when it's been excruciatingly hard, we've made to align with those values. And so, yeah, I think even before we realized that's what we were doing, we were kind of taking steps towards that. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a very eloquent way of putting it. I mean, I feel it's definitely messier than that. Um, oh my in God. Practice, but yeah, it's you know, really yeah, messy right. sometimes. Right. All right, everyone, we've got this thing figured out. No, I'm, uh, <laughs> no, but it, no, I mean, it got really stressful, just decisions about where to live, where to invest, whether or not to live apart. Um, yeah, that whole question of what are we doing things. is like, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think there were times when it was so scary and overwhelming that all we could do is say, well, 
you know, we decided we have a vision and we have to stay committed to that. Like this is the moment when we're doubting that vision that we actually have to double down. And and I remember you saying that to me when I was really sort of having a hard time with some changes last summer. And um, you were like, this is not the time to give up that dream. This is the time to double down. Yes. I usually would never advise anyone to double down. <laughs> but in that moment, it felt like you know, you think of the cliche stories, right? And it's like, okay, hold on. This is the moment when a lot of people are going to double back and be like, I give up. Right. And there's no shame in that. But if you, it seems as though if you really like going to go for gold, there are going to be moments where you're tempted to turn back and you got to just sort of breathe through it. And exactly on the opposite side. But I will say, when things have worked, they've worked beyond the wildest dreams of what we thought could happen. Oh my God. Right? And so it's like... Yeah. And always at the last possible second. Exact, at the exact moment is, when we needed it the most. Infuriating. Yeah. Right. yeah. Right. And so we have tried to cultivate a trust in that, um, that things will come through in that way, that the universe will come through in that way. And it's hard, but it's also fun. Uh, most, I think 99% of the time, I think it's fun. Like, why would I, why would we live life any other way? Uh, I can't imagine it. I know, or, I know. Right. And, you know, even, even though we're referencing how hard it's been, um, I also think that we, had we not made these hard decisions and kind of taken some risks and uh, tried to commit to these ideas, like we would not have been as personally or as creatively fulfilled as we have been. So it's like the highs were very high. And then there were also low lows. It was like, that was all exaggerated. Yeah, no, totally. So this is kind of a hard question. And I apologize in advance, but what role do you see music playing in a reopened and reimagined world? And it's okay if you're not totally sure. I mean, I think that, you know, it's dangerous to have um, really concrete ideas about what the world will be like later. But I just wonder if you've had any thoughts. So the only thing that I feel fairly certain about is that the the thought of going back to where we were feels overly optimistic to me in that I just can't see on the tail end of what probably is going to be a year pandemic in which probably, I mean, we're at what, 180,000 right now, people have perished Mm. and didn't need to, that we can just sort of go back to what we were doing, right? There probably needs to be a moment of like deep reflection of, what did we just live through and what do we need to do to make sure this doesn't happen? Right. Musically though, I mean, it's, it's split. So if we think of music broadly, music is everywhere. You can't, you can't escape it even if you want to. Right. And so there will be jobs for musicians after the pandemic. What I don't know is if there will be orchestras, if there will be as many orchestras, there might be, mm-hmm. there might not be, I don't know. You know, some of it depends on how long this thing goes, if there's a workforce afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not, I'm sort of purposely not wrestling with the question of does society need this or not? 
because I can't give you an honest, I can't give you an unbiased opinion because Mm -hmm. I have a conflict of interest there. I think a lot of that will be determined on when we emerge and where do people want to spend their money? What do they want to go to? It's true. And also, you know, one thing that you and I have been talking about lately is that that question about whether or not society needs us. And while we don't have an answer, I think it, it really does come back to how we're looking at needs. Like right now, the needs of our society are so serious and really oriented around survival that we can't get beyond that to kind of like the needs that you would hope would align with maybe where we would have evolved by now. I remember you asking me, like, we were just on a walk and you said, is art essential? And, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a... Surprise! Just a fun walk for your Tuesday. Good question. Although, you've asked me harder questions on walks before. <laughs> uh, like, what are we having for dinner? I really hate that question. Uh <laughs> Yeah, no, so I, but again, COVID has just blown the lid off of all the things that were already plaguing us. Like we're, we live in the 21st century in the richest country in the world. Why are some people in this country worried about survival? That shouldn't be a thing. And so why, why would we expect anybody who's struggling to survive to show up to an orchestra concert? That has got to be the last thing on their mind. Oh my God. Right. right. So that's, that's the direction that I'm heading with this conversation is like, once we get the basic human rights out of the way and we're no longer operating from this place of fear of survival, then we can start to think about the essential nature of things like art. Because once we have safety is a given and survival is a given, then we can start to think about the next step, which is like healing and transcendence and growth and evolution. And I think art plays a really critical role in that. But at just like bottom line, I need food to eat. I need housing survival. No, you know, and, and it's hard because a lot of artists love this lofty idea that, that art is essential. And there, there are plenty of philosophical arguments to be made on both sides, but at the end of the day, uh, people need to survive. Yeah, I mean, there is the difference between the hierarchy of needs, which suggests survivability, and then actually living. And it is it just simply blows me away that there are so many people pre-COVID that, in spite of working hard and being good people, are devalued by whatever capitalist economy we have that says you're not you're not worth survivability. Like you're going to have to figure it out. I'm like no. it just seems it seems inhumane and barbaric. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then we wonder why art can't thrive, and it's because as a society we hold this weird barbaric value that mm-hmm. is the antithesis of humanity. I mean, it's the antithesis yeah. of humanity, and so if art. If art, what can we extract and assign a dollar amount to? Right. If art is supposed to transform humanity and show us the best of ourselves, we're starting at a really low bar kind of thing. With mm-hmm. And on top of it, in classical music specifically, yeah. we're talking about a ethnocentric viewpoint. And so like that becomes even worse right. of a proposition. Right. And you said that art is meant to transform. Yeah. I started thinking about, um, the conversations we've had about racism in classical music and, 
Um, that's a big conversation, uh, but to kind of simplify it, you've talked a lot about organizations and people in societies needing to make values level changes, you know, rather than just these surface level statements and plans and letters that these are really going to have to be roots deep kinds of change. And I'm just like, I totally agree in principle, but I think in practice, it becomes something much harder. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how a person or an organization or an orchestra or whatever might actually make that change. Uh, I, you know, I think it's somewhere between the science of awareness and behavior modification. So like, let's think of like recycling as an example. We all know that recycling is generally a good thing. I don't know if there's anybody that would be like, recycling is bad, right? It's free in Greenville County where we live and it's easy to do. And yet there are people who don't do it. And we've always been good recyclers, but then we went into like overdrive mode right because it's like the one thing we can do for climate change oh, right my God. yeah even though we know that it's not really individual level change that is gonna make the dent no it makes me feel better more than it does yeah right and it, it's yeah and it's again acting in a way that lines up with our values right but that that into overdrive i i'm not sure where the tipping point was it just felt like overnight one day mm-hmm. we were just like, we're, I'm going to just take this can. I'm going to drive it home. And if my friend needs me to drive their oh, can home yeah. too, I'm going to take their can home too, you know? Right. Carry it with you all day if you have to. Yeah. that's, that's what we do. And I don't, I don't think you and I sat out 10 years ago and said, we're going to become recycling enthusiasts. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, during our brief and unfortunate stint in Vermont, um, I remember that was one of the first places where we had seen compost bins everywhere. Mm-hmm. And we had this running joke that like at farmer's markets and like public spaces and things that so they had like a trash monitor that was waiting to like slap your hand if you put something in the wrong bin. Yeah. Look at you judgmentally. And well, but that's, that, that's a nice example because there are times where I see people throwing cans away and my initial reaction is to just like run up to them and like preach the gospel. Yeah. And it's like, and then I go back to Vermont and it's like, hold on, I really wanted to do the right thing here, but I kind of just avoided it because I didn't want to get looked at by the <laughs> Vermont guy. And so then it's the like, Vermont okay, guy. well, that was kind of like a negative feedback to me to do this right. Do you know what I mean? And so it's sort of like, we've got to find ways to encourage people, I guess, I think maybe. Yeah, like acting from a place of like, join in, this is fun rather than like, you're going to get yelled at if you don't like, we don't want actions to come from a place of fear. Well, yeah, no, I mean, so you think about children and getting kids to behave, to change their behavior. It's always better to show them what positive is as opposed to reprimanding them because then they're right. just going to avoid. And same with dogs, yeah, right, you know, right. And it's adults just like are reinforce, just, feed them treats, which really like I respond quite well to that as a fully grown adult. Me too. I mean, so I see this in orchestras and I have purposely built out reprimanding an orchestra or saying like, you know, you're out of time there. It's, that's just not helpful, right? That's not helpful information. Most of the time the musicians know something's not right. Instead, Mm. like, why don't let's, let's listen, let's listen for the ensemble here. And that just Mm. does everything you need it to do. Then everyone listens instead of like, I don't know, the fourth, clarinetist feeling singled out 
Yeah, it's like you're together. opening the door yeah, yeah. for participation. Right. Yeah. And that reminds me of a lot of our conversations this summer, too, about um, Black Lives Matter and racial injustice and just uh, where to even start in a lot of the organizations that, you know, where we have influence or where we're involved. And you would often mention language as being a really important part of this and that you prefer this sort of like, and I think it's the same um, philosophy as what you were just referencing, but just kind of like inviting people into the fold rather than like giving them a place to belong and contribute and help rather than like berating them with um, this other language that I've heard you refer to as reckless, even though like you and I are very much like here for the revolution and totally see that like the burn it all, burn it all down mindset is necessary. It's like, we also believe in this diplomatic approach, which can be a hard balance. Yeah. I mean, in my heart of hearts, if I just wave a magic wand, I would use all of the most out front language out there because I am in basically 99.9% agreement with all of all of the things, yeah. right? Yeah, like the reason that we capitalize black and the reason why we yeah, have, right. like the terminology shifts over time, yeah. I have no problem saying defund the police or Black Lives Matter or any of the phrases that seem to just like force people, people to insane. light their hair on fire, right? God. Um, but then I think, you know, I think about sort of the mythical person that lives in Michigan that Probably, you know, this guy, he's probably a God. good dad and like... But 2016 November came around and... Yeah, and like inexplicably did what they did. But <laughs> but truthfully, like, have, have they believe in climate change. They have no problem with gay marriage. They understand the nuances of abortion. They, you know, they if you talk to them one-on-one, they're going to be right there with you. Like, probably pretty far left of center... Universal healthcare sounds good. A self-sustaining wage sounds good. Uh, mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter, yeah, we there's a pretty big race problem in our country. Uh, yeah. But then nationally, we get this we get this language that well, we get I the polarization in the media. Yeah. And, yeah. But that guy might look at that, and not click on the not click on the thing, mm-hmm. and then and, he sees yeah, Trump. the language is weaponized and everything yeah, yeah and then that they get preyed upon and that but see the, to create a critical mass those people are in the middle those are the ones you got to get to have the tipping point and so i'm all for dying on the hill and i would i'd be the guy standing right next to the person dying on the hill <laughs> You totally would, which is why it's funny that sometimes you can you can play this kind of like Jekyll and Hyde role in life, except like both both sides of the coin are fundamentally good. It's not like one side is like your evil um, counterpart. But yeah, it's funny because if I was like, hey, today's the day, like we're going to do this. We're going to fight to the bitter end. Like you'd be behind me. Yeah, you know? because in the end, you got to go to sleep at night and wake up in the morning and be yourself. Right. Um, but yeah, I know, I guess I worry, I guess I worry that, um, it's just that, you know, that some people are never ever going to open their minds to that kind of conversation and you're interested in trying to break through to those people. And yeah, it's easy to wonder if it's not possible, but, um, I'd like to hope that 
in some way it is. We've got a lot, a long way to go before we get there. But, you know, your example of the guy in Michigan in the national media was good. But I'm also wondering, like, do you have an example of a way that you've tried to live out this idea in your own life? So I'm on the board of an organization, which will go unnamed. I am the only minority and also probably the only millennial on the board. And (laughs) this organization... Two birds. Yeah, well, I'm holding several tokens there. Yeah. Um, this organization is a lovely organization. Got a lot of really fantastic people that are running. They care, mm. but just didn't think that anything needed to be done around race relations. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I just couldn't not broach the issue with the powers that be. And it wasn't like I'm going to write this open op-ed letter and like light the thing on fire. It was like we're going to try yeah. and respect the chain of command here and go through the party. And it turns out they're all for it. They really mm. want to do it. They just don't know how. And mm. it was just a matter of somebody broaching the topic. Then that's, I think that's all we can do is just within our own spheres of influence, emanate yeah. out. Yes. Right? Yes. And I think that's also how it starts to feel more doable because when we think about these pervasive systemic issues that are literally killing people, whether it's black mothers in uh, childbirth or black trans women on the street or detainees who catch COVID at the border, whatever it is, those can start to feel so overwhelming. But if you just bring it back down into your own sphere of influence, as you said, then you start to see little ways that you can take action. It becomes much more doable. Yeah. And so that, that was the thought with my current employer was we put out a statement, which was okay. But then it came to the point of, okay, we've got it. We've actually have to say something and like question our own values here and are we complicit? Because we're a policy organization. We work in a red state. There's been a lot of good things that have come out of uh, mm-hmm. ICS, and we're working with Republicans. Uh, yeah. They're the ones that are responsible for a lot of the good things mm-hmm. that are probably left of center. But, but at and, the same and time... And did that happen because they were shown the research, essentially, uh, that, that, that you guys do? Well, it was if you spend money here, you're going to save money down the road and the money you're going to save is going to far outweigh anything that you spend now. And like money is everything and money is more important than politics. Uh, Right. Right. And like, while I'm all for using that as an avenue, as the avenue we have right now to get things done, I also want to see our culture progress to the point where these issues related to human life are not reduced to a dollar amount. I am absolutely there with you. And this is where I split myself because I despise putting a number on a child's life, but sometimes it's part of the work. And if Mm -hmm. the end goal is to get more childcare, for example, more public childcare. Yeah. um, And that's the only way that it's going to happen. The deal I make with, with myself is I'd rather win than be right. Yeah. And it's like you're speaking their language in order to meet your goal, which fine. But uh, yeah, yeah. And and that's these kinds of things are part of navigating, you know, the current reality we have in order to try to like create the world that we dream of. So yeah, it's, it it can be hard. Have you learned anything about yourself this year that you didn't know before? 
Yeah, I, I will say that because I've not been standing in front of orchestras, the scores I've been learning have, in silence, somehow somehow come become more alive and vibrant when I'm just Whoa. looking at the music. And maybe it's because I miss standing in front of orchestras. But if you do these pieces over and over again, it's hard not to remember the last performance and the Mm. the sound of the last orchestra. Mm. But because it's been months, you you begin to like, oh, you know, like maybe something can sound like this or, you know what I mean? Like, which has been kind of fun. Uh, I, you know, I don't know if it's actually going to work. (laughs) I feel certain that it will. It's been really adorable to see you like buried in these scores all summer because I guess it brings me hope in a way um, when it's, it's easy to feel like everything's slipping away, but to see you remain devoted to these pieces without any of the sound that they're meant to impart is yeah it it says a lot about your your path your relationship with time and artistry that we were talking about and also just yeah the nature of um it kind of gets back to what you were saying about the point of music like if it's to be in the present moment then staring at one measure for five minutes probably takes you there yeah well I mean some of it is the extra time that we have like Previously, I'd be preparing a concert and it's like, I've got to move to the next piece. Like, I don't have time to like sit around philosophically about what this fermata means. <laughs> I got to get in it. I got to get out of it. And we got to get to the next piece. But, yeah. you know, there are some lovely life questions that come out of pondering, you know, what Stravinsky meant by You're this adorable. ambiguous marketing that he put in there. And like, what led to that? And what are the effects yeah, of it? Yeah. yeah. And you don't even it's not that you're like picking up a score and listening to the recording. You're like in deep for weeks with one score. I mean, do you want to, can you describe like in layman's terms, how it is that when you say you're learning a score, like how are you going about that? That leads to you staring at it for weeks on end. (laughs) So my first conducting teacher, this was one of his big things. He, he was, constantly telling me that we've gotten to this because of the recording industry uh, and technology. Now every piece is available. You can get a recording for any piece. Right. And he was like, there are so many young conductors that can't read the music and can't come up with their own individual idea. And like, that's killing the field. Right. And he's Mm -hmm. like, if you're going to study with me, I ban you from listening to any recordings until you have actually learned what's in the music and then once you feel confident in that, then, then it's time to go consult some other recordings just to see what's out there, right? And so yeah, yeah. he's like, all the work happens at the piano, or if you have an instrument, you can be on your instrument and do it that way. Which is very old school. It's, well, I mean, look, the way that Mahler learned scores, he didn't have a recording. He just had to open the music and hear it in his head. and then Exactly. Right? And, I don't know how you do it. And I have two music degrees, and I still don't know how you do it. Didn't you have to keep asking him to let you study with him? And was that part of it? Like, okay, if we're going to do this, you can't do it that way. Well, so he wouldn't, he wouldn't take me until I was um, a senior in college. He said, you got to get through all your theory. You got to get through all your musicology and you got to do well in those classes. And then (laughs) I'll consider taking you. And it was because you can't expect to be a conductor and stand in front of orchestras and not have all those things 
foundationally, right? If you're going to be in charge, so to speak, he he knew that in order to be up there in front of people, you're going to need these things because they're going to have played these pieces far more times than you have conducted them, right? Interesting, yeah. And so it's important that you have considered these things beforehand and not are reproducing like Herbert von Karajan's latest recording, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, don't just regurgitate something that you don't even realize that you're just carrying around subconsciously, but create something that's all your own. Yeah, otherwise, just put on a recording and then charge people to listen to recording. We all go home. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. It sounds like understanding the scores on such a deep level or having such a solid grasp on them actually facilitates those things we were talking about earlier about the open door sort of invitation, the collaborative approach, because if you're up there and you can just relax because you know the music so well, you're going to be able to better manage the like human relationship piece of the job. (laughs) All conducting is, is human relation is human management. Um, (laughs) If you have listened to this recording a hundred times, you are going to not be able to hear it any other way. And you're constantly going to be trying to get the person, the bassoonist, if you will, to reproduce that. And like, they're not the same person. They're in a different setting and we're supposed to be creating this together. In some ways you want to put together the complete picture with everybody's input. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a group art project, not an art project where one person does all the work by themselves. That's right. And so if you have understood what's in the music, you can understand why that person is playing it that way. And then put everything else around it instead of stopping the orchestra and trying to explain what Karyon meant, except in your own language. And then, um, which is never yours to begin with. Yeah. That's right. And it's just, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't feel good for the musicians. It doesn't feel good for the audience. I don't think. And you know, yeah. Are you ready for a lightning round? Yes. <laughs> If the pandemic were to magically end tomorrow and you could conduct with any orchestra that you wanted, any piece that you wanted, what piece would it be? Both? Sure. I said what piece, but it sounds like you want to tell us what orchestra. And so now I want to know. I want to be in, I want to be in Nashville, like that hall and that orchestra. And then I just know, I know people there, you know, like, yeah, it's a special hall. It would be happy. Um, Mm. That's sweet, Levy. I don't know. I guess maybe like Rite of Spring or something, or maybe something just wildly new. Actually, there's this there's this piece of the puts to, sets to music the last words of Seven Victims of Police Violence. Oh yeah, and I heard about that. I remember just sort of stumbling on this piece during the middle of a work day. I was working on some policy paper. I just put everything down. I just decided to listen to this piece. I was like in tears. And this never happens over like electronic, you know, like I'm usually sort of like, yeah, that's good. But like, just feels of the moment that, that piece is important. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Your favorite quarantine snack. Go. Well, I've been making quite a bit of fried rice because of your discovery of David Chang and his fried rice. And so Mm -hmm. that has. Yeah. David Chang has already come up on like three of these podcasts. Well, you know, you're going to have to interview him next. Maybe he'll do it. You should do it. You should ask him and I bet you he'd do it. (laughs) Hey, um, what do you think the most fun moment of quarantine has been at our house? The most fun moment, uh, the random 
dance parties and uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean the walks have been really nice. Um, yeah, we walk a lot. And then yeah, there's just these moments where we're, we both find just random happiness at the exact same moment. And that's not something that would have happened had I been working in an office or you've been in New York or something. And like, we would have had them, but we wouldn't have had them together, which was kind of nice. Oh, that's true. That's sweet, lovey. You have been on this train of free Britney. And then for like <laughs> four nights in a row, you were staying up until... Oh my God, it was like one or two. Okay, it was like five or six nights right in a row (laughs) where you were like deep onto Instagram and Twitter, like deep into There is some important reporting on Free Britney on Twitter, okay? I think you were on the dark web a little bit. And (laughs) that was kind of fun because you'd tell me as I was half asleep or the next morning about whatever is going on there. Yeah. Which I believe, I mean, I have to save her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And then there was a period of time in which you found this guy in LA who is the most wonderful dance instructor. And also it seems like he's a wonderful human being that was just doing shout out Ryan Huffington, doing dance classes on Instagram. And one time I heard you doing it. This is before you told me about it. And you were just, there was all this commotion in the other room. And this guy just screaming through the phone at people with pretty good music. And then we did a couple together and that was, you know, that was fun. That was pretty fun. See, I was not expecting those to be what you would name as our most fun moments. I was going to, I was thinking you would say like when we reinstated date night and we realized like, oops, that almost became a before times relic. And we started like getting takeout and a bottle of wine to take to the park and then coming home and like cranking the music on the porch and just like living life, you know? That was fun. I mean, we've had moments like that before and I know they're going to come back. And like the first thing we're going to do when things break is uh, we're going to go out on a, you know, just blow it out date. But in terms of like the quarantine, uh, there are these things that would never have happened without the quarantine. And so like, you know, I think looking back 10 years from now when I'm like, Hey, remember when we were stuck in our house for a year and (laughs) <laughs> and we didn't kill each other. Yeah, and you know there there was we this dance party. Deeper random. in love, deeper in love. So yeah, that's that's the day to day. I like how when I insert songs into our conversations, you you like you don't miss a beat. Like you don't add to it and you don't comment to it. You just keep going. That that that's. I thought we weren't going to do a podcast on our relationship. <laughs> But that is episode one, probably. Um, Yeah. And the other most fun moment I thought you might say was just like our lockdown songs. That, I mean, it feels like we're in like lockdown part three and that was. Or like 11. Do you remember like that was early March, mid March (laughs) and the pandemic was still kind of a joke because no one really had passed away. Yeah. And Trump was ridiculous and right well you know yeah and people were just getting through with humor well we thought it was going to be over by july 4th and it's like okay well we can all be a little funny here and like um as long as no one's dying then things got really serious and it was like do you feel like doing this anymore it's like yeah is this out of touch right and we both like the same night were like i don't i don't know like 
I know. Uh, well, yeah, this, right. You know? And like people had started dying, but it really started to spike. And we were like, well, this is starting to not feel appropriate. And also the problem with that is that, you know, levity and joy and humor can coexist with grief and pain and sadness, but the internet does not allow for that coexistence. It's it's too one-dimensional. So to only be representing the levity in a time of such heaviness no longer felt um, great. Yeah. And but also we just naturally came to an end of like, all right, that was our album. I mean, we'll wait for was, the next one to come. That was an album's worth of songs. It was <laughs> yeah. 10 or 11 songs and like, we're done. Like, the no, ideas that right. started slowing down, like I think we had a couple more that we didn't publish, um, but it was definitely one of those fun, just like creative bursts that happened. Yeah, to um, us, you know. Yes, we were just the the vessel for it to like come out. I don't know where you came up with those, but Listen. they just came, and then there they were. It's sort of like when you ask somebody how they're doing now, mm-hmm. six months into this, whatever we're in. If they say I'm doing great, like my immediate response is like, you're a psychopath. What are you talking about? Like, like, no, wait, how are you really doing? Like mental health check. Right. Yeah. I actually say that when we meet our, when we meet up with good friends or something, you know, for a porch hang, I'm like, okay, mental health check, go. Anybody who's doing anything better than hanging in there. Yeah. And like a little dubious of like, I know. Yeah. Lovey, thank you for doing this. I love you so much. I love making this life with you. And um, I really appreciate you sharing everything, all your thoughts here. Me too. I would do this anytime. You want to do it next week? (laughs) This can be our standing Friday date. Sounds good. Yeah. You're the best. Love you. I love you. All right. Do you like how when you typed, you conferred with me, I flirted with you? I hope you did. You're sounding a little buttoned up today. This is my podcast voice. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening today. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to We're All Friends Here. You'll get an email once a week on Saturday mornings with an essay or a conversation about the struggle and the beauty of being alive. Take care out there, and I'll see you next time. That's making it in there as well. <laughs> no. <laughs>